Are you guys doing better than my cough? Okay, I, that's what I, I hope. Hey, uh, if you've never met, <clears throat> my name is Coughing Phil. Um, I get the wonderful privilege to call uh, myself the pastor of this wonderful group of people who call themselves Clarity, and uh, whether you're someone who's visiting for the first time or you're someone who has called Clarity home for a very long time, as I say, usually every week, thank you for making our gathering a part of your weekend. Now, this past week, my... Thank you so much, Shannon. I'm going to drink this. All right. This past week, my mom called me, and uh, <clears throat> I missed her phone call. Her mother had just passed away this week, and so I knew that she was probably wanting to talk and kind of talk through everything, and so I missed it, and uh, I was in line waiting to pick up my kids, and so I thought it'd be a good time to, uh, <clears throat> good time to call her. And so I, I called her and seen how she's doing. And uh, if any of you've met my mom, she's like this bubbly energy of positive energy. And so um, it, it, even even in the midst of <coughs> losing her own mother, she <coughs> uh, she she was very very positive. She's like, oh, it's okay. I just lost my mom, and everybody's fighting, and everyone now they're fighting over the land, and you know it's okay. I'll be okay. And that's just my mom. And um, <clears throat> and uh, so, anyways, I, I picked up my kids, and and then when the kids got in the vehicle, she's like, oh, let me talk to the children, the grands, the grands. She calls them the grands. And and so we put them on Facetime, and and then of course, you know, she's like, oh, so good to see you. Oh, look at you. You know, like typical grandmom's like, oh, look at you. You're so grown. I think that's what your obligation to say as a grandparent every time you see your grand. Oh, you look so big. Yeah, big or grown up. Right? And so it's a typical kind of stuff. <coughs> she was. <coughs> ah, okay. We're going to make it through this. Promise. <coughs> Dear Jesus, help this cough in the name of your son. Amen. So. Uh, she, she talks to him, and then after we uh, hang up the phone, uh, one of my kids looks at me and says, you know, uh, Dad, is it, is it kind of weird that when I talk to Grandma, and she seems so, like, excited to talk to me, and she feels really connected to me, but I don't know, I just, <clears throat> see, don't do that, because I'll copy you. <laughs> I have cough drops in my bag, so I should just bring everything on stage, and maybe I'll get a recliner, and I'll just, I don't know. Um, as I was saying, my, uh, my kid said, you know, I, I just don't feel connected to grandma, but I want to. And I, of course, you know, trying to make them feel better. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, look at Ricola. This <clears throat> podcast, this one. <clears throat> I'll just speak this again next week and I'll <clears throat> have something good. Um, hey, uh, so... Now I got this thing. <laughs> I'm a hot mess. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to sit. Oh, that's a weird flavor. Huh? Oh, thank you. A hot mess? You like me a hot mess? Or sitting down? <laughs> I'm going to take the sitting down. Okay. Um, you know, doing my best to make my kid feel better, I said something along the lines. You know, it doesn't, it, it does make sense that you don't feel connected because you you just haven't gotten the opportunity to know my mom as much you've got as much as you've gotten to know uh, your your mom's mom and grandma, grandpa Baron, because you grew up with them. You 
you're around them. They visit us all the time, so you feel more connected. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, I know you feel bad, but it's natural not to feel connected to someone you don't know, even if you feel like you should. Um, Every year, there's a day that rolls around in the calendar where I believe many people who call themselves Christians end up having kind of the same similar feelings. I, I don't know about you, but it's not that people don't care about this day or that they don't care about what it means, but for some people, including but not limited to people who follow Christ as their Lord and Savior, this day is filled with what appears to be a kind of engagement that leaves some people wanting to feel connected, but for no intentional reason, they just don't. And whether you refer to this day as Easter Sunday or <clears throat> Resurrection Sunday, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can feel like a day filled with much effort in celebrating and engaging with Jesus, but can also be a day for many that leaves people more excited to see chocolate and peanut butter filled chocolate candies and makes them more excited about Easter egg hunts than the reality of this day, this Resurrection Sunday, this day where sin was defeated and, 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 and once and for all, our sin has been paid. And, and, and for no one intention at all, it just, this is kind of what happens. And so since the beginning of Clarity Church, we've always dedicated the weeks leading up to Easter as a time to familiarize ourselves with the life and teaching of Jesus so that when the time of the year we call Easter Sunday rolls around, we're not surprised by its celebration, or at least we give ourselves the best effort to not feel like we want to connect with Easter and all that it is, but yet, if we were honest with ourselves, it's kind of like, hey, am I the only one that's ever experienced an Easter like that? Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're a better Christian than I am, but there have been Easter's where I was like, oh, this is great, I believe Jesus is alive, and but I just... Maybe I was arguing too much with my wife on the way home uh, last night, or maybe we took too much time to get the kids ready in the morning, or whatever it is. <clears throat> I just didn't feel like there was something to celebrate. So today we begin this new series with this goal in mind. We want to spend the next five weeks leading up to Easter rediscovering, or maybe for some of you discovering for the first time, how Jesus is better than anything we could place our hope in, and greater than anything we could ever imagine. In years past, we looked at the life and teaching of Jesus while he was incarnate, when he was God in flesh on earth. But in this series, we're going to look at how the story of Jesus, who he is, and, and what he has done goes back way before he turned water into wine, or even before he was born in a manger. Over the next several weeks, our hope is that we will explore this not often talked about reality, that the whole story of Christianity is about Jesus, all of Scripture is about Jesus, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament and the New Testament together points to the reality, the beautiful, the better, the greater reality of who Jesus is. And as we spend the next four weeks in the Old Testament, we will look at the story of Adam and Eve and learn how Jesus resisted temptation and can give us the strength to do the same. And we'll study the story of Hosea and how the, his life was meant to show us Jesus' grace is better and his love is greater then, and, and, and that his display of love is the only display of love that has been, been known to cover a multitude, of, a multitude of sins. 
And we'll look at the life of Isaac and how his life prefigures the sacrifice that Jesus would later make on the cross. And, and, and we'll, we'll seek to look with new eyes through the life of Jonah, how Jesus lovingly seeks to draw those who are separated and rebellious against him to himself. So what I want to do is not waste any time, and let's just dive right into our text. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Luke chapter 24. If you have your notes, I printed those out there for you. But you can follow along. We're going to spend primarily most of our time in this passage of Scripture because the text today is one of the best illustrations of how the story of the gospel is better than just the story of Jesus' life on earth, just the 33 and a half years that sometimes we're tempted to think of when we think of this person, Jesus. And <clears throat> this, I think this story illustrates just how the good news of Jesus is greater than any news that has ever been or will be proclaimed. So, if you're with me, Luke chapter 24, we'll look at verse 13. <clears throat> now, that same day, well, I'm going to stop there and some of you are like, okay, what's the significance of that? Now, listen, listen. Just in case you're not familiar with where this passage of Scripture falls in the timeline of the life and teaching of Jesus, what you need to know is that there is great significance in these four words. Now that same day. Now that same day was the day that two women came with spices to pay their respects in the same way we'd leave flowers at the grave of those we love. Now that same day was the day that the earth shook and a stone was rolled away. Now that same day was the day that the, the body they were looking for had disappeared and angels from heaven had, had appeared. Now that same day was the day that shocked and shuddered the lives of those who followed Jesus. Now that same day was the day that changed the course of history. And I don't know where you are in your journey of faith or whether or not you believe everything you've heard about Jesus or the Bible, but like it or not, Jesus made an impact in the world and it was never the same. Now, that same day. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing... Jesus, Jesus came near and began to walk along them, along them, along with them. But, but they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, um, hey, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? Stop right there. If you can imagine what that day would have been like for these followers of Jesus, the tragedy that they must have felt they were walking along this seven-mile stretch of road, absolutely bewildered after three and a half years of watching Jesus walk on water, making spit wads out of mud and putting it on blind eyes, feeding 3,000 people with just a small boy's lunch and, and, and going to every town and every place and, and every town and every place they would go to, they would see miracle after miracle and they would hear teaching after teaching that revolutionized the lives of everyone who heard it as if Jesus' words himself cut to the very heart of man. And in fact, it was proved in itself because it made burly fishermen in their strongness and their manness and the worst of sinners, the tax collectors and the, uh, the prostitutes and made them all Listen and say, this is what my life has been missing 
I must follow Jesus. But then, to watch him die, when everyone had hoped for more of this Jesus of Nazareth, they had hoped for better, for greater. And I don't know how exactly they were kept from recognizing who Jesus was, but I know this, that Jesus, the resurrected and no longer dead, but now alive, was all of a sudden there. Poof! (laughs) And he was walking alongside the two disciples. And he was walking long enough and close enough to ask them this question. Verse 17. (coughs) Then he asked them, What is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered, Are you the only one visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here these these three days? What things? (laughs) He asked them. And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I heard some of you laugh because you know funny, and I know funny, and this is funny. Jesus says, what things? (laughs) As if though he was clueless to the nail scars in his hands and in his feet. And oh, Don't forget the being raised from the dead part thing. You know, like, oh, I just kind of forgot all that. Who is this? What things that happened? I I love this. Two guys walking down the road knew Jesus died and had earlier that day heard from two women and the disciples that his body was gone. Now they're heading to Emmaus, which is seven miles from the city. And now we find out where they are emotionally. They are disappointed and full of grief. They stopped, and they were what? Discouraged. And even before modern psychology discovered the stages of grief, you see it here in display. They were in shock. They they were shocked, and they they were just angry. In fact, in the the literal Greek, it it kind of connotates this idea that they were literally shouting at each other along the road, and who knows what they were arguing about. But one of the things we knew, the grief had cut them so deeply that now two people who were united in the love of Jesus were now arguing with each other. Have you ever been there where your grief led you to arguing with those who were just closest to you? This is, this is the reality of what was happening. They were in shock and they were just angry. And in fact, the original language, like I said, the better translation of verse 14 is while they were talking and arguing with each other. Now, before we, before we get like too judgmental over how these two guys living at this time, having seen Jesus in the flesh and witnessed all they had done and, 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 and heard everything that he could taught and, and how they could be you know, disappointed with sadness written across their face. Listen, haven't we been there too? Like, haven't you been there? I mean, how much do you know about God? How much have you yourself, taught others 
about God? How many of these kind of messages have you sat through where you, if you were asked how you feel about God, you would say, I'm really, I'm just really disappointed. Do you know how long I've been praying about this? Do you know how long I've been lonely? Do you know how long I've hoped for, I've wanted? And yeah, I know, I know Jesus died, and crossed, I saw the flannel graph when I was six. So did you. But Phil, if you were to, to ask me, how I felt about Jesus, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm just a little disappointed. Haven't you been there? Haven't you been there? I know I have. And so these guys are, are just amazed that this stranger doesn't know of anything that has gone on these last three days. And so they say, You literally must be the only person on the planet who has not heard of what has happened here. And Jesus is like, uh, what things? You know, hiding his hands so they don't see his scars. I don't know. I don't know what he did. I just, you know, and here they are. They're distraught. They're going, what? What's that? What? You haven't heard the things? And she's like, "Uh pray tell. (laughs) And I, personally, I, I don't think Jesus was trying to be coy. I don't think he was trying to be like me. In fact, that'd be a bad example of who Jesus is. But I think Jesus was trying to demonstrate, listen, that he was more committed to letting people know how much he cares over proving how much he knows. And so Jesus says to them, well, tell me more. Tell me more about your disappointment. Tell me more about the events that led you to where you're at. And so they did. And they said this. They said, Jesus was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. Besides all this, it's, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, This is what we've been arguing about. Have they seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive? And some of us who were some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, and we found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. <coughs> oh my goodness. I wonder how much Their story is a part of your story. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe you would say it's, uh, it's not that you don't know Jesus or that you 
don't know anything about him. In fact, you probably know a bunch of information about Jesus. And this information had led you to hope that he was the one who was going to change this life, change this marriage, change this relationship, change my future. I had, I had hope, Phil, that one day he was going to be the one that changed my circumstances in life for the better. I had hoped Jesus was going to do something greater than this. Because honestly, right now, as I'm living, there's nothing better. There's nothing greater. It's just disappointment. And yeah, I hear some other people talking, Jesus is alive, but I went to the grave, and at least for me, he was just gone. So disciples tell the story, and they have all the information in their heads. They walk with Jesus. They saw the miracles and even performed some of them with him. And, and then this is where Jesus kind of steps in. And I think, I think he's realized that he needs to kind of interject before they get too deep in their funk. <laughs> How many of you have gotten too deep in your funk before, right? And, and you just needed someone to kind of go. <laughs> and so here Jesus kind of steps in, and he says, don't you have a clue? who Jesus is, and he says this like this. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet have spoken. Was it not necessary? If you have a Bible where you can highlight, highlight that. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Luke chapter 2 tells us that after celebrating Passover in the city of Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph, you know, Mary and Joseph from the manger scene, I'm not going to assume everyone knows who I'm talking about, but Mary and Joseph, away in a manger. No. So that Mary and Joseph, okay? along with the rest of their family and uh, evidently others who were part of the traveling party, they began this journey back from Jerusalem after Passover back to their hometown of Nazareth. And it wasn't until the next day after they had left Jerusalem to go home to Nazareth that their 12-year-old son, all of a sudden they realized wasn't with them. Now, I have a 12-year-old son, and it's really hard to not realize he's not around because sometimes... He's not here, right? No, he's not here, right? No, because uh, he just captures my heart all the time, right? No, but like, you know, 12-year-olds, they do what 12-year-olds do, right? And I don't know if Jesus had an iPad like my son does, but there's sometimes like, where's, where's my son? Oh, he's just doing what 12-year-olds do. And I, mean, I think that's what Mary and Joseph thought. Like, he's probably with one of the other kids. They're, they're doing their thing. They're, I don't know, doing what 12-year-olds do. But they wake up and they realize, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's he gone? And so they take the whole day trip back to Jerusalem. And after three days, so one day, and then they spend three more days looking all over Jerusalem. And where do they find him? Those, those of you who know the Bible, where, where do they find him? He was in the temple, right? He was in the temple. And here's what went down. Luke 2, 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And some of you who are parents who have lost your kids know that the Bible is being really nice. (laughs) 
Astonished is a word that I might use if other people are listening. (laughs) I am astonished at you. Astonished is the word I was going to use. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Don't you know that what? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know that it was necessary for me? And he goes on to say to be in my father's house. What's wonderful if you've never actually sat down and read a whole gospel in one sitting is you miss out that these gospel writers are actually trying to tell a story, like a good story. I know some of you have Bible reading plans that have you in and out of Scripture, but if you ever sat down to read Luke, it would click for you. You would understand, and in chapter 2, Luke goes back and brings this theme up again here at the end of his book and says, just like in the beginning, it was necessary. He brings this phrase up, knowing his readers would catch this. It was necessary. I love how N.T. Wright, uh, Bible scholar, connected the dots between the story when he wrote this. He's just said it in a better way. He goes, the way Luke has told the story may strike a careful reader of his gospel as a part of a large-scale framework around the main story, which is just about to begin. One of the best-loved moments in his gospel is the story of the road to Emmaus, in which two disciples are sharing their anguish over the three days that have elapsed since Jesus' death. Jesus meets them and explains it was necessary that these things had to happen. And here is another couple coming back to Jerusalem, finding after three days that Jesus, they thought they had lost, and having him explain that it was necessary. The word is exactly the same in the Greek here as it is in the road to Emmaus. That I had to be busy at my father's work. (coughs) You might call the pair of stories something like Quote, on finding the Jesus you thought you'd lost. And if that is the message of these two passages, maybe, listen, Luke is wanting to tell us something about his gospel as a whole. Maybe he is writing at one level at least for people who may have some idea of Jesus, but find he is more elusive than they had imagined. Finding him, of course, will normally involve a surprise. Jesus doesn't do or say what Mary and Joseph or the two on the road were expecting. It will be like that with us too. Every time we relax and think we've really understood him, he will be up ahead. Or perhaps staying behind while we go on without thinking. Discipleship always involves the unexpected. Just think about that for a second. Discipleship always involves the unexpected. Man, I wish I wrote that. (laughs) It's good stuff. Back to Luke 24. 
after Jesus is done walking them through all the scriptures, <coughs> Genesis all the way through Malachi, the rest of the story goes on like this, Luke 24, 28 to 35. <clears throat> they came near the village where they were going, and he gave them the impression he was going further. <laughs> Seriously, Jesus? Okay. Anyways, it's, it's just funny. I mean, think about it. All right, guys, peace out. <laughs> he gave them the impression. He wasn't going anywhere. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening. And now the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open. And they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. Shut up. (laughs) No way. What's going on here? They said to each other, catch this, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay, seven mile road. It was dark. They're already there. So in the dark, two guys, very dead. They didn't care. This road, they were hightailing it down this dark road right back to Jerusalem. And so they go back and they found the 11 and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them. How he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. You know, when they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scripture to us, I believe they were saying the equivalent of something like this. Somewhere between our disappointment and realizing just how better Jesus and just how greater Jesus is through the Old Testament, somehow that he was much, a much greater Jesus than, than we thought, in comparison to the small idea we had of him, somewhere in that moment, our lives were changed. Somewhere when he acted as though, though he was going further, and, and I stopped and I said, no, no, please stay. It was things. It was then that things began to connect. And I don't know about you, there's a, there's a lot of things that I hope that uh, God has on like a heavenly DVR <laughs> that I could watch and rewind back to. And these are one of these moments. And quite frankly, while it would be cool to see Jesus kind of disappear, I don't want to see that. I don't even want to see how, uh, how the whole bread making thing kind of opened their eyes. I didn't know if, if there was like a... Ah, you know, I don't know if there was anything like that. All of a sudden, they were like, oh, Jesus. His hair was flowing. I don't know. I don't know if that happened. I, I don't know. And he was like, ha, see the hands? I don't know. Here's what I'd want to see. That's, that'd be all fine and dandy, but here's what I would want to see. I personally would want to sit, and I would love to just watch listen to Jesus explain himself 
in all the scriptures. Connecting from Genesis to Malachi, from Moses' writings all the way through the prophets. I would love to sit and to hear him tell these two guys just how much better, just how much greater he was than the small idea they believed Jesus was to be. I think that would have been the best Bible class ever. (laughs) And maybe it sounded a little something like this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Is that a type? See, that's not typology, that's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's he's the real Passover lamb. He's, He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Maybe what Jesus said sounded like that. Maybe it didn't. But over the next few weeks, what we want to do is press in to answer these two questions. First question is this, who is your Jesus? If you ask me to describe Jesus, I'll tell you about his life. I'll tell you about his death on the cross. I'll tell you about his miracles. I'll, I'll tell you how he turned water into wine. I'll tell you how he made the blind see and lame walk. I tell you how a guy was dropped in through the roof of a house just so he could be healed by Jesus. I'll tell you how Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, and we'll laugh. <laughs> I'll tell you about all the things that I know about the life of Jesus, but if that's all I told you, that would be a small definition of who Jesus is. 
If my definition is only found in the reality that he was born in a manger and then ascended into heaven, I would be a very small Jesus. But what if, what if my definition of who Jesus was was found in the reality that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, who was in existence before the world began and through whom the world was made and all things not only exist, but are held together. What would it be like to have this be my Jesus? I guarantee if Jesus is just some guy who lived a couple thousand years ago for about 33 years, that Jesus will leave you disappointed and standing in your discouragement. But Jesus is better than that. He's greater than that. So over these next several weeks, we're going to look at who Jesus is so that you can say with conviction as we lead up to Resurrection Sunday and worship Jesus for all that he has done, not just the cross, but fulfilling the great promise that he would seek and save those who are lost. Who is your Jesus? Who is your Jesus? We'll be asking that question. And the second question we'll be asking is this, where is your Jesus? After all you know and all you understand, well, where is he? Is he still on a dashboard? A bobblehead on your desk? Is he neatly placed on a necklace or on your earrings? Is he a stat in your mind? Is he sitting in the vending machine of our spirituality that we like to refer to every once in a while when we want to justify our pursuits of happiness, prosperity, and personal beliefs of morality? Or is Jesus located at the center of our life? Is he more than the consultant for the choices we make, but he is the compass for our life, leading and guiding every decision in every moment with everyone and in every place so that we live lives actually accomplishing God's mission? Who is your Jesus? Where is your Jesus? Those are the questions that we'll be asking and finding answers to as we look at how Jesus is greater, how Jesus is better.